Okay, chapter 29 is burns. So an introduction, burns affect multiple body systems in addition to just affecting the skin. We get a lot of uh, fluid shifts with burn, major burns as well. Not only that, remember the skin, primary role of the skin is to help maintain temperature. If we're burning that skin away, body temperature regulation is a significant concern in burns as well. And ENTs must have an understanding of the types of burns and how they affect patients. And it's going to be the extremes of age, very old and very young, and those that are chronically sick have the greatest risk of death from burns. Again, skin, uh, burns primarily affect the skin. So we have those three layers, the epidermis, dermis, sub-Q. And remember, the skin is the largest organ of the human body. So functions of the skin. Remember, it's that physical barrier from the external environment. Insulates, protects the body. Provides sensory perception. Elimination of body waste. and aids in the production of vitamin D as well. So pathophysiology of burns, what's going on during a burn? Most burn patients die that die in the pre-hospital setting don't die necessarily from the burns themselves. What they do die from is the occluded airway. They breathe in superheated gases, get a respiratory burn, and their airway swells shut. They either die from an occluded airway, the toxic inhalation, breathing in carbon monoxide, for example, or they die from other trauma. The vast majority of our burn patients are not going to die of the burns themselves, not in the pre-hospital setting anyway. Burns are one of the most devastating injuries the body can sustain. They're typically, again, very devastating. They take a very long time to heal and very painful. For us, maintaining that patent airway, adequate ventilation and oxygenation, controlling life-threatening bleeding are going to be our priorities of care, just like in any other trauma, but especially true for burns as well. Burns also play a role in this, or can damage the circulatory system as well. Again, burns causes massive fluid shifts and fluid loss inside the body. Not only that, but burns increase capillary permeability, which decreases intravascular fluid, which causes burn shock. So again, with burns, we're getting fluid shift. We're losing, the patient is losing large amounts of fluid. They also get increased capillary permeability, so the fluid that's still left in the blood vessels are starting to leak and seep out as well. And remember, We've talked about the categories of shock. There's a special or specific burn shock that is a type of non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock that we see in major burns. Edema, massive swelling can occur, and that can further compromise the tissue perfusion, and that fluid shift results in hypovolemia. 
Burns can also affect the respiratory system. Burns, inhalation of superheated gases or air can cause swelling in that airway, causing airway obstructions. Then breathing in that toxic substance can cause toxic-induced lung injury. Smoke, toxic gas can cause respiratory compromise and poisoning. So cyanide is one of those gases that we worry about. Carbon monoxide poisoning is the biggest one that we worry about in patients that were in a, in a burning environment. Other items include things like sulfur dioxide and hydrogen chloride. Also wreaks havoc on the renal system and your kidneys as well. During this, we get decreased blood flow to the kidneys. Again, your body's kind of prioritizing the other organs, so it's shunting or moving blood away from the kidneys. That's going to reduce urine output. They're also hypovolemic, so we also don't have enough volume to go around. So we get deep, decreased blood flow to the kidneys, which is going to decrease urine output. Not only that, all of your burned tissue, the damaged tissue that has been suffered because of the burn, all of that is getting moved and processed to the kidneys to try to get rid of those extra waste products from the cell destruction. So we're asking the kidneys to work a lot harder than they're used to with very limited blood flow to them. So we're overtaxing our kidneys big time and which is likely going to cause kidney failure in these major burn patients as well. Nervous and muscular skeletal system, nerve endings can be destroyed. When you get loss of function of the extremities can result where those nerves get so badly damaged that they lose normal function in their extremities permanently. And again, burns are extremely painful. They can lead to massive scarring on the patient. They can lead to long-term physical and psychological issues for the patient as well. GI system, decreased GI perfusion can cause nausea and vomiting. That's in turn is just going to cause the patient to lose that much more fluid. And long-term considerations include ulcers and ensuring adequate nutritional support for the patient as well. Okay, so classification of burns. There's a few ways that we classify burns. The most common way is we're going to classify these burns by depth. So the types of burns that we have, there are three main types of burns. There's a fourth burn that we'll kind of get into a little bit as well. But we have superficial, partial thickness, and full thickness burns. The older terminology is superficial. It used to be known as a first-degree burn. Partial thickness used to be known as the second-degree and full thickness used to be known as a third degree burn. We can also have fourth degree burns, which those are very high energy, high electrical energy can cause what they refer to as fourth degree burns. So superficial burns, again, used to be or more commonly still is referred to as first degree burns. You need to know both terminologies Again, the correct terminology is a superficial burn. Involves only the epidermis. So it's only that outermost layer of skin is getting burned or damaged. And these are superficial burns only characterized by redness. 
So a sunburn, something that I'm very familiar with being a ginger, is a superficial burn. I deal with them all the time. Typically, they can be pretty painful, but they're typically not that worrisome if it's a first degree by itself. So now we go a little bit deeper. Now we're getting into partial thickness burns or second degree burns. And this is not only is it involving the epidermis, but it's now also involving the dermal layer as well. So outermost layer and that middle layer are burned and damaged. By looking at a patient, how we determine, hey, this is a partial thickness burns, is partial thickness burns are going to have blistering. So if we look at this patient and we notice this blistering, we know that a partial thickness burn, this patient has a partial thickness burn. Something else I want you to note as well, patient has partial thickness burns, but all this reddening around the partial thickness burns is superficial burns. So they're likely going to have both. And then we have full thickness burns, and that involves, or third degree burns, that involves the epidermis, dermis, and getting into the uh, sub-Q layer. Extends through all layers of the skin. And third-degree burns are characterized by charring or blackening of the skin. And the patient has a black or dark brown leathery type of skin that is referred to as S-char. And again, that is a third-degree burn. So you can see up here, this guy looks, it looks like leather. Skin looks very firm doesn't look like normal skin, it's very leathery, that's S-char, and again, that's indication of third-degree burn, and right here, we have that black charring of the skin. Fourth-degree burns extends completely through the skin, deep into the tendons, ligament, ligaments, muscles, bone, blood vessels, and nerves, and again, that is typically from very high-voltage amps of electricity that causes fourth degree burns. We primarily focus on the superficial partial thickness, full thickness burns. And again, just a little illustration showing you the burns. So again, superficial is only the epidermis characterized by redness. Partial thickness is the epidermis and the dermis characterized by blisters. And full thickness is through all the layers, black, S-char, or uh, uh, blackened, ashen, ashy skin. So not only do we classify burns by depth, we look at a patient, we can tell, hey, this, this is a superficial partial thickness of full thickness burn. But when we talk, we can also talk about classifying the burns as by their severity. Is this a minor burn or a critical burn, et cetera? So we classify the burns by severity for treatment, transport decisions, factors in determining the burn severity is gonna include the main thing, or one of the main things is gonna be the depth of the burn. We need to be able to classify the burn by depth before we can classify the burn by severity. Certain locations of where that burn is located at is gonna play a role in determining if it's a critical burn or not as well. Patient's age, patient's pre-existing medical history, and an estimate of the percentage of the body that is covered in burns as well. We'll talk about how we estimate that percentage. So 
if we have critical burns solely based on where they are located at, we're not talking about just first degree, we're talking about either superficial or partial thickness burns. Partial thickness or full thickness burns, I'm sorry, not superficial. So if we have major burns to the face, that's gonna be a critical burn. Main reason being is we're worried about inhalation injury and in that airway swelling. So we look in that mouth, if we notice soot, singed nasal hair, singed facial hair, or obvious burns inside the mouth and, or nose, that's automatically gonna be classified as a critical burn. If we have major burns to the hand and feet, those are also are considered critical burns because there's a good risk of the loss of joint function and the patient would be permanently disabled from that. Burns to the genitalia due to loss of the genital urinary system. And this is a big one. This one's gonna be on your test. Any circumferential burns are always considered severe or critical burns. And circumferential means it's burned all the way around that body part, like the chest or like an extremity, the legs, the arm. And that's due to the swelling and circulation restriction. If we have a burn that is totally wrapped around my arm, my arm is going to start swelling in all directions. That can compress nerve endings, that can compress blood vessels, and actually reduce blood flow beyond that burn. So again, any circumferential burn is considered a critical severe burn. So again, one thing that we're looking at is burns to the face that may indicate a respiratory burn. In this case, we have soot or singed uh, facial hair, burns to the nose, nostrils. You can see blistering even around the patient's lips. That all may indicate a respiratory burn. This would be a very worrisome sign regardless of how well the patient looks right now, because we're going to worry that over time that swelling is going to get worse and worse until it causes an airway obstruction. Age and pre-existing medical conditions. Children under the age of two, adults over the age of 50, have less tolerance for burn injury. Not only that, kiddos lose, have a potential for proportionally greater fluid loss so they can get hypovolemic quicker and more severe than adults. Fluid and heat loss are greater in infants and children than it is in adults as well. Again, that's a big concern when we're dealing with burns is the patient getting hypothermic and kids don't tolerate their body heat very well. So we gotta be careful uh, and cover these patients up with a blanket. And not only that, with kiddos, burns is a very common way uh, that somebody can inflict child abuse on a patient as well. Determining burn size or body surface area. So trying to estimate how much of the patient's body is covered in burns. There's two primary ways that we are going to accomplish this. We're either going to use the rule of palm or the palmer method. And the other technique that we use is known as the rule of knives. So the easiest one, easier one to remember, is the Palmer method or the rule of palms. May also be referred to as the rule of ones. And this states that the size of the patient's palm, just the palm, not including the entire hand, not including the fingertips, just the palm is the patient's palm is roughly 1% of total body surface or TBS. So again, the patient's palm 
patient's palm is roughly about 1% of her TBS. The only time we really use the rule of palm is for kind of isolated burns that are scattered throughout the body. If we have burns that are covering large portions of the body, we're not going to use the Palmer method. We're going to use the rule of nines method. So in this case, she's got a isolated leg just to one small part of her a burn to one small part of her leg. So using the rule of palms, that's roughly two and a half to three uh, percent TBS. Again, rolling nines <clears throat> is what we're going to use if there's larger widespread burns. It assigns a percentage of BSA for each area of the body. And since kiddos say they're in small kids, their heads are proportionately larger than that of an adult, we have to make differences or uh, change it up a little bit based on patient's age. The head is going to be worth more in a pediatric patient than it is an adult patient, because again, the head is proportionately larger in a pediatric than it is in an, in, in an adult. So here's the rule of knots. You do need to memorize the rule of knots. So this is saying, and we'll go with an adult first, an adult head, the entire head is worth roughly 9% TBS. Each arm, the entire arm, is roughly worth 9%. The torso, the front, that includes the chest and the abdominal uh, abdomen, is worth 18. The back of the torso is worth another 18. Patient's genitalia is worth 1%. And each leg is worth 18%. So again, with my entire left arm is burned using the rule of nines, we know that roughly 9% of my body surface area is burned. So again, we can do, we can estimate percentage of burns very, very quickly. Again, we have to make changes for pediatrics. So for kiddos, their heads are a little proportionately larger, so their heads are worth more. Heads worth 12%. Everything else is going to be the same until we get to the legs. We took some from uh, we added some to the head, we had to take that from somewhere, we took it from the legs. So in children, 16.5% each leg, infants, even more so. 18% is what their head's worth, and we again, we take that from the legs. So each leg is worth 13.5. A different way to look at it, to me, this is always easier to comprehend instead of looking at it in a table, looking at pictures on it of it. And again, when we're talking about the rule of nines, we're talking about the entire extremity. So ju if just the anterior portion of his left arm is burned, which that's the right arm, but if the anterior portion of his right arm is burned, it's not 9%, it's roughly 4.5%. We just take that 9, divide it by 2, that gives us 4.5%. Same thing right here. If only the chest is burned, the anterior chest, that'd be roughly 9% because it's roughly half of the torso. Make sense? On your next exam, you will be asked to determine the percentage of burns using the rule of nines, and you will not get the chart or this picture to help you figure it out. You need to memorize the rule of nine. So critical burns, any full thickness burns involving the hands, feet, face, eyes, ears, or genitalia, 
Burns associated with respiratory injury, full thickness covering more than 10% of the body surface. Partial thickness burns covering more than 25%. Partial thickness burns uh, less than 20% in children, less than 10 in adults, more than 50. Chemical burns or high voltage electrical burns, burns complicated by fractures or major trauma. Moderate burns in young children or elderly patients and circumferential burns to any part, such as an arm, leg, or chest. So again, if we see any of that, that's automatically considered a critical burn. And again, here is just a table that talks about the classifications. And these burns are either classified as minor, moderate, and major. And I'll let y'all read over that. So again, we kind of talked about different types of burns that we may come across <clears throat> or the different injury pattern that we'll see. But what's causing those burns? So there's different types of things that can cause burns. We can have thermal burns. This is where heat is applied to the body. We can have inhalation burns where high temperature of air or steam is inhaled, causing respiratory burns as it's getting sucked into the lungs. Chemicals can cause burns to the body produced by acids, alkalis, other heat-generating chemicals. Electrical burns result from electrical current flowing through the body. And radiation burns absorbs absorption of radiation, radioactive material into the body can cause burns to the skin as well. A flame burn is contact with a open flame. It's a type of thermal burn where they are actually making contact with a flame. Contact burn, again, is a thermal burn where they're contact with a hot object. They reach out and touch a hot pan causing a burn or hot water. If it's hot water, it's technically, sorry, it's a scald, which is contact with a hot liquid. And a steam burn is making contact with the steam, the steam causing the burn. And steam has a very high heat capacity. It can store and hold a lot of heat. Gas burn is upper respiratory burns due to hot gases. Electrical burns, again, is internal burns due to electrical current. Again, that sufferer patient suffered from a flash burn. It's a type of a flame burn that is the result of a flammable liquid or gas that ignites quickly. So it's just like a flash fire. It flashes and then goes out pretty quick. So our primary assessment of burns. We're dealing with a burn patient. First, we're going to go through our primary assessment. We need to remove the patient from the source of the burning. If we can do that safely. Again, if we're not trained, we don't have the proper equipment, we're not going to rescue the patient. We'll let fire department do it. So we don't rush into burning buildings, et cetera. Let the specialized uh, rescuers handle that. Again, in most cases, it'll be the fire department. If it's within 10 minutes of receiving the burn, cool the burn with water or saline. We need to stop the burning process. Remove jewelry, smoldering clothing, smoldering clothing from the patient, and assess our ADCs. During our assessment, if we're checking the airway, we need to look for indications of airway burns or difficulty breathing. Again, singed nasal hairs, singed facial hairs, 
soot or obvious burns to the mouth or nose. Uh, patient's conscious, has a very hoarse sounding voice that may also indicate damage to the airway causing swelling. And if toxic inhalation is suspected, administer high flow to non-rebreather 15 liters per minute. Again, anybody pulled from a burning building, regardless if they're burned or not, we're going to consider that carbon monoxide poisoning. So they need to get placed on high flow to non-rebreather 15 liters per minute. Our secondary assessment of burns, reassess the mechanism of injury, achieve complaint. Again, check for other injuries, do a complete head to toe, continue to remove the patient's clothing. We can't treat what we don't see. And then we need to determine an accurate BSA. Again, either using the rule of nines or using the Palmer method. Full set of vital signs, patient's conscious or bystanders or family on scene knows the patient, also get a history from them as well. So treatment for burns. We need to remove the patient from the source of the burn and stop the burning process. However, like we've talked about since the beginning of class, do not enter an unsafe scene. If they're in that burning building, we don't, don't have the training, don't have the equipment, allow the fire department to rescue the patient, bring the patient to us at a safe distance away, then we can start treating the patient. We are going to start removing clothing, but we do not want to remove any adherent material from the burn, especially if they're wearing some type of synthetic clothing that's not 100% cotton. If there's plastic at all in it, uh, it's going to likely melt into the skin. So we can remove clothing, but if anything is stuck to the skin, like clothing, melted shirts, etc., do not try to rip it off. Just leave it in place, cut around it. If we're dealing with dry chemicals, again, we should brush that dry powder away from the skin as much as we can off the skin first and then flush with water. And if clothing is still smoldering, we do need to remove those smoldering clothing as well. So stop the burning process. Fresh, recent burn. Uh, Within 10 minutes, they're going to cool the burn by pouring sterile or normal saline on it. This is going to instantly cool the skin, prevent further tissue damage. Remove the smoldering clothing, cut the clothing off. Supportive measures, primary assessment ADCs. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, provide positive pressure ventilations. Administer oxygen by non-rebreather for toxic inhalation. If we don't suspect toxic inhalation, say they were outside in an open environment, setting off fireworks and it just burned their leg, we're not so much worried about carbon monoxide poisoning, then we just go back to any other trauma. We maintain SpO2 sats at or above 95%. Classify the severity of the burn, taking account BSA, source of the burn, location of the burn, age, pre-existing medical conditions. And if we suspect or we determine this is a critical burn, we need to transport the burn uh, immediately. We've talked about this before. Patient needs to go, any burn that wants to go to the hospital, they should go to a burn center, especially if we're in Lubbock. If we run on a burn patient, that patient does need to go to UMC. 
We cover the burned area with a dry sterile dressing or a burn sheet or approved commercial dressings. One thing that we never do with burns in the pre-hospital setting, we don't put ointments, burn creams, or gels over the burns, if, especially if, they're, if we're transporting them. Now, if it's a minor burn, they don't want to go. We can advise them, yeah, it's probably safe to put burn cream on it. But large, deep burns where that requires hospitalization, we don't put anything on it besides dry sterile dressing. One thing it's important to remember is even though this patient came out of a burning building where it was so hot in there that it caused burns on their skin, we have to worry about hypothermia. So even though we were pulled out of a very hot environment, we have to cover them with a blanket. That skin gets burned. They lose that ability to, to preserve and keep their own body heat. So burn victims need to be covered with a blanket. We also never applied moist dressing to a burn. And that moist dressing, again, is just going to make that patient lose heat temperature that much quicker, leading to hypoxia, or I'm sorry, hypothermia quicker. Keep the patient warm. Again, cover them with a blanket or a burn sheet at the bare minimum. Treat other injuries as we find them and transport to the burn center. So we have that burn on that patient's leg. We cover it with dry, sterile dressing. Keep the patient warm, transport. So if the patient meets any of this criteria, that indicates that they need to go to a burn center. We're lucky because we have a burn center here in Lubbock. We're going to take all burns to our burn center. And this primarily is referring more to like transfers from hospital to another hospital with a burn center. And I'll let y'all read through those. For us, again, in Lubbock, it's simple. They have a burn, they need to go to UNC. Special consideration for dressing burns. If we have burns to the hands, toes, we wanna separate all of their digits with dry sterile dressing. So, if my hand is burned and y'all are going to dress my hand, we don't want to put burned skin against burned skin or that skin is going to basically fuse together. It's going to be very painful when I try to separate them out later. So what we need to do is before we wrap it with Curlex, just get four by fours, wrap it in, put it in between my fingers. That way when we wrap it, it's not skin to skin contact. My fingers aren't going to get fused together. If we have a burn to the eye, don't attempt to open burned eyelids. We apply a dry sterile dressing to both eyes, wrap them up. If it's a chemical burn, we flush chemical burns medially from the nose outwardly, we, and we need to flush eyes for at least 20 minutes if it's a chemical burn to the eye. And again, if we bandage one eye, we bandage both eyes. So again, we have a burn to the foot. We need to separate each one of her toes with Curlex to prevent them from sticking together. Same thing if it's inside the hands. Burns to the eyes, dry sterile dressing against the eye, and then bandage both of them. Same is true for the ears. If we have a burn to the side of our head or our ears and we're going to wrap it up with Curlex like this, 
put a four by four behind that ear so we're not pinning that ear to the back of the side of the skull. So when we're dealing with chemical burns, occurs whenever a toxic substance contacts the body. Eyes are gonna be particularly vulnerable because they're constantly wet. The fumes from certain chemicals can be enough to cause burns as well. And the severity of the chemical burn is gonna be directly related to the type and concentration of that toxin and how long that patient was exposed to that chemical as well. Our safety is still most important, prevent exposure, wear appropriate gloves, eye protection. If it's not safe for us to approach or we don't have the proper PPE, don't enter, allow the fire department to decon them and bring the patient to us. Brush away dry chemicals before flushing with water. Try to get as much of that chemical off of that patient first if it's, if it's dry chemical before we start flushing and irrigating. And how we decon most chemical burns is just going to be with water. And once we start flushing, we need to ensure that we have plenty copious amounts of water to flush and irrigate with. You know what piece of equipment has plenty of water in it? Fire truck. So if they need to, they have tons of water that can be used. So here's an example of a chemical burn to the patient's eye. And it looks like it, I mean, it looks like it pretty much cooked that patient's eye. Chemical burn, again, we're going to start flushing it. Flush it for 20 minutes medially from the bridge of the nose laterally, and we're going to transport while we continue to flush. We're not going to wait around on scene 20 minutes. Start flushing it on scene, continue to flush it throughout transport. Chemical burn to the ear, and again, like I said previously, if we're going to bandage that, we need to put four by fours or gauze behind that ear so we're not pinning that ear to this uh, hair and scalp. Chemical burn to the hand. Special considerations treating chemical burns. Dry lime, we talked about, is kind of the most common example that's used for a dry chemical burn. It produces a corrosive substance when mixed with water. So that's one of the reasons why we definitely want to try to brush off as much of that powder as we can before we start flushing it with water. We still use water, even though it's producing that corrosive substance, we're just kind of overwhelming it. We're pouring a lot of water to it pretty quickly to try to just flush it, get it off the patient as quick as possible. Hydrofluoric acid used in the process of etching glass can penetrate the skin, cause delayed burn reaction. And again, just like with dry lime, we flush that area with copious amounts of water. So again, dry lime, brush as much off as we possibly can. Then we irrigate it with uh, copious amounts of water. Carbolic acid can cause severe burns as it quickly is quickly absorbed into the skin. It also can produce a vapor, and the vapor is toxic. Carbolic acid can be flushed with isopropyl alcohol, followed by copious amounts of water. Sulfuric acid reacts with water and produces heat. Again, we still use water. We just have to pour a lot of water to it very quickly. Copious amounts of water. And we're not going to start trying to decon this patient until we ensure that we have copious amounts of water on hand. 
Again, chemical flushing chemicals from the eye start immediately at the bridge of the nose, flush laterally. So we're not flushing that chemical into the patient's good eye. Electrical burns, electrical energy always seeks the flow to ground. And as that electrical energy enters the body, it's going to seek the path of least resistance. Again, that electricity is always trying to reach the ground. If it enters us, it's going to take the path of least resistance, the easiest path it can find to reach the ground. So depending on the voltage, if it's a lower voltage electricity, it's going to flow through the muscles, tendons, etc. That's going to be its path of least resistance. If it's higher voltage, it's going to flow through pretty much anything. It will flow through bones and the leap path, not much, nothing is really giving it much resistance. So it's going to be the shortest path to the ground. All tissue between the entrance and exit wound of that electrical energy can be injured. And again, this is electricity, so it can override our own body's electrical system. So you can damage the heart our body's electrical impulses can be dis disrupted. Anytime we're dealing with electricity, again, scene safety is crucial step. Like, I don't know what it is, but electricity scares the hell out of me, probably worse than anything else out there. I always get nervous doing like home improvement stuff if electricity is gonna be involved in it. Never attempt to remove a patient from an electrical source. If they're touching something and they're actively getting electrocuted, don't reach out there and try to pull them off because you're going to get electrocuted as well. We need to shut the power off uh, to wherever the patient's getting electrocuted before we can touch the patient. So our treatment for electrical burns. Don't attempt to remove from an electrical source until the power has been turned off and never touch a patient still in contact with the electrical source. From there, we do supportive measures, aggressive management of the ABCs, oxygenate to maintain O2 sats at or above 95%. And again, the electrical system in the bodies can be out of whack. So monitor for cardiac arrest, check for breathing, check for pulse. Patient may have an irregular pulse because they're in a cardiac dysrhythmia. Just do a good thorough assessment. As we're assessing the patient during our secondary assessment, we do need to look for an entry and exit wound. Sometimes it's pretty obvious and you can actually see small holes in the body where the electricity entered and exited. We need to transport the patient as soon as possible. And these type of patients could definitely benefit from ALS backups, but specifically paramedics who will put the patient on a heart monitor to see that electrical activity going through the heart. See if it's normal or not. So again, we're oftentimes going to have two separate entries, uh, injuries. We have an entrance wound and also an exit wound. So in this case, patient reaches out to something that's electrically hot, that seeking the path of least resistance is going to move up the arms, blood vessels, nerves, whatever the case may be, go through the heart, and then exit out through the patient's foot. And again, anywhere along this path has the potential of being injured. An example of an entrance and an exit wound, patient reached out, touched something on one side of the body. That's where the electricity entered the body. That's where the electricity exited or vice versa.
In this case, we have a partial to full thickness burn to the leg from a high tension wire caused by the patient was trying to steal copper wire from a transit power station and struck a high voltage line. So very deep burn right there. So the scene size up for burn injuries. Scene safety is still the most important aspect. Be observant. Burning structures or materials. Be on the lookout, so maybe a chemical burn, electrical sources, confined spaces where we also have to worry about hypoxia and displacement of oxygen, burned clothing, and other types of trauma as well. We go through our ABCs, oxygenation. As we're assessing those ABCs, look for strider or curling. From the upper airway, that may indicate a respiratory burn, swelling starting to occur. Again, that hoarseness, patients trying to talk and they just sound extremely hoarse. Obvious burns to the body and clothing, burns to the neck and face, singed hair, nasal hair, eyebrows, other facial hair. Again, if we see burns to the face, we really start concerning ourselves with respiratory burns. And patients may have that black sputum where they're coughing up stuff and it comes out very black, Carbo carbona, car whatever, can't pronounce it. Secondary assessment, we do our physical exam. Depending on circumstances, we may need to do a complete head to toe, get a history from the patient. We wanna know the source of the burn, what caused them to get burned, how long were they exposed to that heat, and was it in an open or enclosed environment? Again, worried about toxic inhalation if it was in a closed space. And again, secondary assessment is when we get our first complete full set of vital signs. Recap of how we manage burn injuries. First thing we're gonna do is stop the burning process. Again, within 10 minutes, we can pour water or saline. Primary assessment, ABCs are still our priority. If it's a chemical burn, the patient may need to be decontaminated. For burns, we only use dry, sterile dressing, never moist dressing. Moist dressing will cause hypothermia quicker on the patient. And if the patient survives that initial incident from the burn, the toxic inhalation, the respiratory burns, et cetera, and they die later on in the hospital, what's likely going to kill them in the hospital is going to be infection. So covering those burns not only is uh, the main purpose for covering the burns is to limit uh, infection, contamination from getting in there. And again, even though we just pulled them out of a burning building, and they were in a very hot environment, we need to worry about protecting body warmth. Hypotherma can develop even during hot weather because their skin has been destroyed. Determine BSA, classify burns as minor, moderate, or severe. Remember with BSA, if it's isolated, we can use the Palmer method. If it's over larger areas, we need to use the roll of nines. Consider ALS backup. They will start IVs, give the patient fluid to try to prevent or stay ahead of that massive fluid shifts and fluid loss that occurs during burns. So again, they're going to give fluid replacement. Paramedics are also going to give the patient as much pain medicine as we can by protocol. Because again, burns are very painful. 
And again, make sure that we do transport to the appropriate facility. If we have access to the burn center like we do in Lubbock, all burns should go to UMC. So in summary, burns can be dramatic, be associated with other life-threatening complications and injuries as well. Just like with any other trauma, though, we focus on our primary assessment. We focus on life-threatening injuries first, then we can go back and manage the burns. If the patients, and again, most patients don't die from the burns initially, so that's, we still worry about it, but that's not going to be our primary concern. Make sure they don't have any immediate life-threatening injuries from some other type of trauma. After we can roll that out, now we can go back, we can dress and cover those burns. Inhalation burns are a particular concern because of that respiratory swelling that may occur. Manage the airway, provide ventilatory support as needed, maintain oxygenation, and transport patients with critical burns to a burn center if possible. Okay, any questions over 